This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hey everybody, welcome to From Complex to Queens, Amazing Avenues Minor League Podcast. I'm Steve Saipa and I'm joined by Ken Levin and we have a jam-packed show this week so we're just going to jump right into it and we're going to have our first AFL update on the podcast. We're about a week plus into the AFL season so the players are starting to accumulate some stats. So let's just go uh, up and down the order. First we have Ali Sanchez. And he's played in three games so far, and he is hitting 333, 500, 333 with two walks and a strikeout. Patrick Mazeka, he's hitting 333, 333, 444 in two games with no walks and two strikeouts. Louis Carpio is hitting 429, 500, 571 in two games with a double, a walk, and two strikeouts. Andres Jimenez is hitting 353, 421, 588 in five games with a double, a home run, which happened to be a grand slam, two walks, four strikeouts, and a stolen base. Riley Gilliam has appeared in two games so far in relief, and he has a zero ERA with three hits, four unearned runs allowed, no walks, two strikeouts, and a homer allowed. Blake Taylor, he has two relief appearances, and he currently has a six ERA with three hits, one walk, and three strikeouts. Jordan Humphreys, he made one start, and he did not allow a single run while giving up two hits, walking one, and striking out three. And David Peterson, he made one start, did not allow an earned run, gave up a hit, walked one, and struck out four. So, more or less, nothing too surprising, uh, except for Andres Jimenez's little power surge there. It was actually surprising that the ball that he hit um, actually went out for a homer. It was about letter high and in on the hands, but he he turned on it and he lifted and it just had enough height that it went out. Wasn't exactly a wall scraper, but at the same time, you know, it, it wasn't majestic either. But that's the environment that there. It's like the PCL. Um, Arizona, you know, it's a desert. It's very conducive to those kinds of homers. The dry air just doesn't have much resistance, so it happens. Obviously, it's better that he hits... Homer's like that, then he doesn't, so hopefully he continues. Now, before we go on, uh, Lucas wasn't able to join us this week, but he did record a segment for us, um, basically in defensive stats. <laughs> not not so much in defensive stats, but rather how 
how and why stats are a useful tool to utilize. So, Lucas, take it away. Hey everyone, it's Lucas here. Uh, we had some scheduling conflicts this week, so I'm recording on my own on Sunday night, uh, while Steve and Ken uh, have already recorded the main podcast on Saturday. But uh, last time we did an episode, I mentioned this this idea of, of thinking about prospects as if it's some sort of uh, Bayesian inference problem. And uh, this, I'm sure, surprises no one who uh, is familiar with, with how I think about baseball or how I think about the world, but I'm a uh, a researcher who does a lot of statistical inference with this sort of framework, and it's just how I frame my understanding of prospects. So I wanted to, to kind of explain this a little bit, and uh, don't fear anyone who doesn't like math. I'm not going to start like rederiving Bayes' rule or teaching people about conjugate priors or anything like that. Just really, really simply how you can take this, this very simple probabilistic method of, of understanding real-world data and how I think it applies to prospects. So first, let me just explain what Bayesian inference is. So say you have some problem, right? You have uh, uh, some unknown you're trying to understand, but you also have, uh, either through experience or prior knowledge, a prior distribution over what uh, the, the actual uh, uh, data is. So uh, as an example, let's say I have someone just hands me a coin and they want me to to estimate the uh, bias of the coin. That is to say, how many often will I get heads from this coin? All right. And if it looks like a standard coin, uh, my prior, the prior probability or my prior expectation would most likely be that the uh, uh, coin is balanced, right? That it's going to give me a heads half, exactly half of the number of flips. Every other time I'm going to get a heads um, on average. Now, that, that's a reasonable prior estimation based on what I know about coins and whatever else. But then I'm going to start flipping the coin and collecting data, right? And this is the process of gathering data that's going to inform my prior. So as I get more and more data, as I flip the coin more and more often, my posterior estimate, or, or posterior, I should say, estimate of what the coin's bias is changes, right? So if I start out expecting that the coin is a balanced coin, uh, but I flip it 10 times uh, and I get seven heads. Well, that's not that unlikely with a biased coin, but I'm gonna to start to maybe think, okay, maybe it's a little bit biased towards heads. Now, if I do another 10 and I get another seven heads or eight heads, then I'm definitely starting to think it's uh, more biased towards heads and so on and so on and so on until let's say I've done a hundred flips and I get 72 uh, uh, heads, for instance, just a random number. At this point, the weight on my prior estimation of what this coin's bias is, is almost totally meaningless because I have so much data indicating that the prior was in fact wrong, that the data is showing me that this coin will come up head 72% of the time and I have a reasonable sample size to tell me that. Um, and, and you don't really need to know any of the actual math that goes into this or how you could apply this to machine learning problems or what have you, but that's that, that's like the very simple concept of Bayesian inference that I'm talking about here. You start with some expectation, and every time you get data, you kind of change, it, it adjusts that expectation ever so slightly, your posterior distribution changes. Um, so yeah, the coin example is a very straightforward one, but I believe the first time we were talking about this, it was in the concept of, uh, or on the topic of how we would rate some of the Mets' recent draftees compared to guys who have been in the system longer. So, uh, and specifically, I think it was talking about uh, Mark Vientos versus Brett Batty, Beatty, whatever. Um, so, 
in this instance, let's say that our prior expectation on both players is based purely on on the profile, what I would read about their age, their years as a pro, the stats I can get off a page, their their weight, their defensive concerns, whatever, right? That's my prior expectation. And based purely on the prior, Mark Vientos is younger. He's been in uh, affiliated ball for longer. Um, and they share some of the other concerns, right? But that based purely on uh, a prior uh, distribution of what I'd expect that profile to look like, Vientos is the better prospect because uh, he's younger and has been in baseball for longer, whereas Beatty is an old high school player. Now, of course, we're not just going off that prior distribution, right? We have a decent amount of data on Vientos, uh, some of which is encouraging, uh, but most of which is not uh, does not pretend uh, any sort of superstar upsize, at least in my eyes. So we could quibble over what the data we got on Vientos this year actually means. But to me, it just sounds like he has a stiff, hard swing, doesn't really know where the bat head's going. It's going to struggle to to make contact or post reasonable averages. I'll probably stymie his real in-game power a little bit. And then there are defensive questions as he gets bigger too, of course, right? So this is all uh, uh, data on Vientos that is going to shift my, my prior estimation of the profile in a certain direction and make, more importantly, make the variance on the expectation narrower, right? Um, now for Beatty, we essentially have no data. We have his draft year 150 or so at bats when he's clearly gassed out after a very long baseball season and a big life upheaval. So essentially we have no data on Beatty and no, therefore no data that means my posterior expectation doesn't change at all. So my expectation on Beatty is still just based on what I'd expect uh, on that profile as a whole, just on the prior expectation. Now, that also means that the distribution of outcomes on Beatty is a lot wider, right? Because I'm basing this only on some assumptions I've made about the profile, not any actual data that's refining the estimation. Uh, but to me, and this is some uh, another point you could quibble on, uh, I look at this and I say, look, Vientos has this narrower distribution. His floor is, if you want to make a floor versus ceiling argument, you could argue that Vientos has a higher floor because he has more data and that's giving him a higher, and, and the prior estimation on him is higher. Um, but at the same time, Beatty hasn't demonstrated, hasn't given us bad data yet, right? He hasn't given me data that suggests that I should be cutting off the top end of my prior distribution on what I expect out of him. Uh, and for that, the, the conclusion there basically is that even though I'm less sure of how good Beatty is, I'm less certain about the expected outcome for him, there is a bigger density of probability that he is some high-end player. Draw whatever line you want on a high-end bin based on the f fact that we've seen some bad things from Fiantos and seen nothing from Beatty. Uh, I expect just based on that, that Beatty has a higher probability of being a superstar down the line. Now, some people would probably call this like shiny new toy syndrome or what have you. Um, to me, it just is uh, a processing of what the data is telling me combined with a, a proclivity to take risk in search of upside. And that's a whole different conversation that I'm sure we'll have. Um, you can make a similar argument and it's even more extreme about say David Peterson versus Matthew Allen, right? Like based purely on prior distributions, Matthew Allen is, is hugely risky. There's a huge range of possible outcomes, whereas David Peterson's pretty safe. He's a college pitcher who's made it to, to double. Did he make it to AAA this season? 
He made it to the he's made it to the high minors already. But again, we have a lot of data data about David Peterson that's basically telling us, look, we can be pretty sure what he is, and it's not something high end. Whereas Allen might have a decent chunk of probability suggesting that. Look, he's going to flame out, he's going to blow out his arm, what have you, because that happens. But there's also that tantalizing bit of upside on the top. And if you're someone like me who will take that risk in search of the high-end reward, because that's my philosophy on roster building, uh, then Allen is more interesting to you. Now, this might be an excessive convolution of just the idea of risk versus reward, but I think it's always... uh, good to actually codify it or or uh empiricize it in some way and i just think that bayesian framework kind of uh makes a lot of sense in terms of processing the kind of data you get where you have this hidden variable that is how good is this player really and you're just making observations based on what they're doing in game what scouts are telling you um so i'm sorry for boring you with some math and statistics but that's that's essentially how i i'd like to think about ranking prospects or evaluating risk and reward and i'm sure steve will tell me i'm wrong in like 10 different ways because he actually knows what he's talking about thanks guys welcome back to from complex to queens so last week we were talking about why seeing players in person or even from video is important because it provides context for the numbers that you're seeing and in, able, in order to be able to understand that context, though, you, you need to know what to look for. There's some things that you don't really need any kind of like education or, or experience or whatever to understand, like park factors or environmental factors, things like that. But the majority of these things, it takes a trained eye. So joining us this week to go over some of that stuff are baseball prospectus senior writers Jeffrey Padnastro and Jared Seidler. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. I've got a I've got a glass of Calvados and I'm ready to talk shit about Mets prospects. That's what I do apparently. <laughs> yeah, because you've never done that on this podcast feed before. <laughs> this podcast is built upon that. Yes. All right, so um, like entire books like could be written about all this kind of stuff. There's a lot of information. It's a very dense topic, and of course, it's not like a static one either. The concept of how to Optimize the player's development it varies from organization to organization. And then as a whole, the philosophy changes periodically in baseball. So let's just kind of talk about, you know, recent um, trends and everything like that. But what do you look for? What do you guys look for in a, in a hitter? You know, you get to the ballpark, settle in, and Andres Jimenez walks up to the plate. What are you looking for? And, you know, what are you looking at? I think it depends. Let me use Andres Jimenez as a specific example, but I do think it depends on what level you're looking at because I'm going to be looking for different things for a hitter in the Appy League that I'm going to be looking for in the Eastern League. Um, By the time he gets to the plate, I've hopefully uh, already seen a batting practice session. I know Jarrett differs with me a little bit on the importance of of BP looks, but I I do like... that, that's partially just because I usually can't get to the ballpark. Early <laughs> I mean, I like to get them when I can. But I think it, it, there's value in seeing the swing when it's in ideal circumstances. I think there's actual, actually more value in that in the low minors because it's less likely you'll see that in games. By the time you get to double A and you're Andres Jimenez, I don't care so much what your batting practice looks like because it's double a and you know the seven pitches you're going to see a year that you can basically replicate your perfect batting practice stick high fastball swing in 
are not going to be like a like a make or break thing for you. You know, I really want to see how you approach the at bat. You know, how you respond to sequencing. What do you do in two one? What do you do when you're down o two? You know, stuff like that. Yeah, I you know Jimenez is kind of a weird example. We've talked about this on our own prospect segments on for all you kids out there, but like his swing basically got messed up this year. And he's a guy that kind of fit in with something that I personally think is important, which I like having like progressive looks on guys year over year, first half, second half when possible. A lot of times that's not possible just because affiliates are in different places and in different leagues and I don't have a fantastical travel budget. And we kind of fill that in at BP by having a large staff that at least tends to get progressive looks on guys. But, you know, I had seen Andres Jimenez a number of times over the past two calendar years, three calendar years, right? Because he was in Columbia in 17. So it made it easier for me to, like, see that there had been something going terribly wrong with his swing. Um, You know, his, his... Basically, he tried to add off to his swing this year and his entire offensive approach and game just kind of collapsed in on itself, which was always a little bit of a high wire act because he didn't have a ton of power and it's not like an overwhelming hit tool. This is a risk with his profile. And that's not something that is necessarily permanent. That's something that can be fixed. He can figure out how to hit for power. He can figure out how to not hit for power and still be useful. But it enabled me to see that this was more than just like a bad couple of games like the first time I saw a video of him this season and certainly by the time uh, Bingo came to town in May you know by the time we were through with that series it was like okay wow there's a problem here (laughs) Uh, which you know is important and interesting to note but that's also like, I don't need to see an Andres Jimenez batting practice in double A, in part because I've seen one in low A, but also in part because they kind of just know at that point, like the game action kind of gives it away. And th- there's ways you can infer like raw power and ideal swings if you have enough information on a guy without seeing a batting practice. You know, this is an old, an old trick is fly ball height. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, hang time on fly balls. That's not perfect either. But batting practice isn't perfect either. You never know what a player is working on at any given time in a look either. That's always something I try and keep in the back of my mind. And that also goes for batting practice. You can get a batting practice on a guy where he's trying to hit everything the opposite way for, you know, line drives and not even realize that's what he's trying to do and think he doesn't have explosive raw power. And he might. Mm-hmm. So you always have to kind of be careful of making too much of, like, singular live looks or series live looks. Um, My example of this is Andrew Benintendi. I saw Andrew Benintendi, like, terrible in the Eastern League, like, right before he was called up. But it was, like, obvious he was working on stuff, and I didn't ding him for that, and he was, you know... He was still, like, one of the top prospects in baseball at that point. I saw Aaron Nola throw a start in the minor leagues where I think every single pitch was a two-seam fastball, which is, like, barely (laughs) something he even throws. 
But sometimes, sometimes you just go out there and work on it. I saw uh, Jamison Tyon start in low eye where he threw nothing but fastballs because the Pirates said you're throwing nothing but fastballs at start. First time I saw Steven Matz in Savannah, I think it, he threw like three sliders. Yep. And that was it. Everything else I was saw, like 91 to 94 mile an hour fastballs. Like, yeah, I got to write something now. Right. <laughs> so, like, I saw Grayson Rodriguez, I think, three times this season. And we had a bunch more staff looks at him. And, like, all this, first of all, his velocity popped during the season. Like, every progressive time we saw him, we had, like, one staff look a month, basically, and he was, like, up a tick in every look. So, like, in the first look, it was, like, 91 to 94, and by the end of the season, it's, like, 95 to 98. But also, just, like, in the last inning, the last two innings of the last game I saw him in, which I think was his second to last start of the season, he starts throwing a cutter out of nowhere, which was nothing in any of the rest of our looks. So I went and talked to the charters, and it's like, yeah, he's screwing around with that now. That brings up an interesting point, because we were discussing this last week about reconciling your own views of a player when they don't necessarily fit with the established, you know, what the established you know the industry consensus is is the term steve there you go thank you industry means whatever you want it to mean yes (laughs) but you know how how do you guys reconcile that when you see something that either in a single viewing or a small hand view viewings that is either you know goes against industry consensus or you know it's a new piece of information or whatever what have you I have a feeling you end we're up ranking, very uh, different. We're gonna have very different answers from this, but probably in the opposite direction that people would expect <laughs> if they knew us. I was gonna say you end up ranking Robert Gazelman as the seventeenth best prospect in baseball. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, go ahead, Jared. So in many ways, I am far more reactive than Jeffrey, but yes. this is one of the ones where I'm actually not. Uh, <laughs> I tend to ask why, what, or. Somebody, this is an old. Oh God, is this an old Al Scarupa thing? Probably. It's like, this, why uh, somebody gave you a lot of money? Yeah, yeah it's an Al Scarupa thing. Somebody gave this player a lot of money. Somebody thought this player was really good, and they're probably at least as smart as I am, and sometimes they're smarter. So you start asking the questions, why? Because there's almost always an answer, and sometimes the answer is illuminative <laughs> to the process, and sometimes it's not either. Uh, you know, I. Saw Mickey Moniak a ton the year he was drafted, for, for, the year after he was drafted first overall, because my home park is Lakewood, and he was there the entire season. I think I saw him something like 35 times or <laughs> something outrageous like that. And I could tell two weeks into the season that, like, this guy isn't any good. And then I spent a lot of time asking myself why he was drafted first overall <laughs> and came to some conclusions that I think have played out over the intervening three seasons, but at the time were considered like wild hot takes. Also in those intervening three seasons, I've went from by far being the low guy to him to maybe now being the high guy on him. And your actual opinion hasn't changed. My opinion hasn't (laughs) changed a bit, but you know, the industry caught up to me, which is the thing that happens. But the question is always why, you know, am I seeing something else that nobody is seeing because that does happen. You know, we can tell Jeff McNeil stories or, <laughs> or if we want to have some fun. That does happen. Yeah. But most of the time it doesn't. Right. Most of the time you're just not seeing something or you have an unrepresentative look or you need to ask it. And, you know, one of the ways you can do this is you can talk to people. I talk to people on the BP staff. 
I talk to other writers in the industry, and I talk to other baseball people on the team side of the industry, like, all the time. And that, some of that is information gathering, but some of it's just like, you know, talking through what you've seen. Everybody does it. So I try and kind of, like, figure out, okay, why am I the low guy on this guy? Why am I the high guy on this guy? Why are other people high on him in ways that I haven't seen? Am I actually right here? Or did, you know. <laughs> and sometimes I am, and sometimes I'm not. And I try not to make wild hot takes until at least I've tried to answer the question why. Um, and then sometimes you end up signing off on Robert Gazelman as the 17th best prospect. Because I was one of two other people that signed off on that ranking. So. And Jarrett wanted him higher. I didn't want him higher. I wanted him above Mitch Keller. And I don't. I still don't think Mitch Keller is any good. He was above Mitch Keller. The only two people that were ahead of him were Tyler Glasnow. And you wanted him ahead of Tyler Glasnow. No, I thought, was, I thought it was Mitch Keller. I'm pretty sure it was Tyler Glasnow. Yeah, whatever. That one doesn't look quite as good. Not and so hey, good. No. if you look at the guys, he was... Yeah, he was ahead of Keller, so I think I actually won that one. If you look at the guy, the pitching prospects, we ranked right behind Robert Gazelman that year. Like, very few of them are actually having better careers than Robert Gazelman, and I'm not sure whether that's a validation of the Robert Gazelman ranking, <laughs> or we just, like, really fucked up all the pitching prospects that year. I don't know. It's one of the two. Weren't there a lot of bad outcomes in that group? Yeah. Sure. Like, like uh, Aaron Blair comes to mind. So we have a general vicinity. We have a very good evaluator on staff, Kevin Carter. And every time we do a global prospect ranking, Kevin argues that we have every pitcher like 25 spots too high. And so just drop them all as a group because they're all riskier than you'd think. And, you know, I think probably in the. Oh, God, what was that, three lists ago? So we're working on the fourth list since the Gazelman ranking. I think, in general, we've gotten more conservative pitchers, uh, which is, you know, something I also think, in general, the prospect industry has been slowly moving towards for, I don't know, 15 years. We also had Mackenzie Gore and Casey Mize in the top five of our midseason list. So. Right, <laughs> and then Casey Mize came back from a shoulder injury and looked terrible. So, But that was also a really weak top 20 of... sure prospects for weird reasons i mean i think instead of telling jeff mcneil stories which i'm happy to do after i finish this class of calvados uh, i think like james karinchak might be more illuminative here sure um yeah james Kar- karinchak it's karen yeah i know it's karen i told you it was karinchak yeah um you know james karinchak was we a- can't mispronounce prospect names here on amazing avenue audio you know was a pitcher we are against mispronouncing names we had a report on from a friend of the site. Are we allowed to say who this was? I mean, he's written for us, I guess. Yeah. Um, Skylar Canfer, who has you know done some work for us. And, saw him on uh, the Cape, I think? Yeah. He saw him on the Cape and, you know, really liked him. And then he went in the ninth round, and we had, like, Decent-ish reports on him out of the Penn League is like a piggyback starter. So we ranked him on the Indians list um, before 28. The low minor sleeper. That's the low minor sleeper. Uh, which, you know, for a ninth-round college arm in a kind of loaded system is not something we normally do. 
that would be a spot that would tend to go to a more prestigious player. And then we proceeded to not see him during the 2018 season. But we talked to a couple of industry people, um, one of whom was pretty high on him and one of whom was extremely high on him as a relief prospect. So we ranked him like way higher than we should have in the Cleveland system, basically sight unseen. Um, we put him and, ahead of Nick Sandlin, who was like one of the right. most effective Bobby, college pitchers in the country. Bobby Bradley, Will Benson, like just guys we shouldn't have put him ahead of. But we had really good reports on him from people that we trusted. And I then proceeded to see him in April, and he was 96 to 99 with, like, big plane and an absolutely, like, I sevened his curveball in double A, which is not something you're supposed to do. I also sixed him as a relief prospect, which is extremely not something you're supposed to do. I mean, you're striking out 22 per nine, which if you have a seven curve and then double A is a thing that can happen. Right. So the, the the question is, is he actually that good and is the industry wrong on him or am I just an overreactive idiot that is going nuts based on seeing him for 20 pitches and my radar gun readings. And, you know, I went with it. There was enough reason for me to believe overall that it was correct. And again, I think that's something that's bore out in the season since then. Uh, And, you know, I kind of had some inklings that the fastball and the curveball were both like really high spin pitches because that's information we can come across on at least an anecdotal level, even if we don't have like the large manipulable data set. And you can also just see the curveball out of his hand and figure it's probably a high spin pitch. You can also just look at the fucking baseball too. (laughs) 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 So if the guy's coming twelve to six with a slider velocity curveball that just has, like, absurd drop. Like, yeah, you, you can kind of assume there's Hazard, I guess, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that was a guy that we flagged at a point in time where I don't think a lot of people had flagged him and flagged repeatedly and then threw, like, a red flashing <laughs> white up there. And we also did that with Emmanuel Passe in the Ranger system, too. So it's I not mean, like- Dustin May was the example I'm going to use, too. We are, you know, going back to, I think I'm very cautious compared to Jarrett when I really want to step out from sort of the expert. I get picked my spots. Yes. However, once I find my spots, I don't give up on guys. Because if I've seen it. Leody Tavares. Leody Tavares, yes. <laughs> but Dustin May specifically, like, so we had Kate Morrison's amateur report. We had some good stuff from him in the complex that we got. And I ranked him, I I think I ranked him 10th or 11th. I ranked him ahead of players that were drafted higher that year by the Dodgers. And again, it's like a year-over-year thing where you're seeing this guy develop and get better. And it sort of, you know, play out. I think I said on his first one-on-one entry, like, you can't just project every tall suburban skinny Texas prep on to be Noah Syndergaard, but a certain percentage of them turn into top of the rotation starters. And he, throughout the process, gave markers to that. And we've always sort of been a year ahead of the industry on Dustin May, and I'm fine with that. And it's borne out fairly well in the majors so far. I actually have more concerns now seeing him in the majors than I think I did in the minors to a certain extent, which is a thing that happens. But I'm still going to rank him like 
I mean, I don't think he's getting enough innings. I really wish he had gotten enough innings that I didn't have to rank him. But that's going to be a thing that happened. So I kind of got to deal with this weird half and half profile. But, like, if I get a guy, like, I get something. I wrote an article earlier this year at BP, basically sort of walking through the steps where I decided to stuff a dude. And it happened to be Ezekiel Duran. And Ezekiel Duran was not like, this was not like, I'm making a huge call here. And he was he was known to the industry. If anything, we were a little bit behind fan graphs on him. But sort of my process of, you know, seeing it live is very important. I got everything. I got a BP. I got an infield. Got a few games. You know, I saw, you know, it was like a decent three-game look. It wasn't anything spectacular, but in terms of, like, performance on the field. But he showed me basically everything I needed to see to pick out a guy. And that's easier to do in the low minors, too. And when I say I'm making a call, he's going to be like a top 10 Yankees prospect. Right. We'll long list him like for the 101, seven. but he won't make it. Yeah. Right. It's going to be like seventh in the Yankees. Like Johan Rojas in Williamsport in the Philly system. Again, I didn't get my marker down before um, either really BA or, or, or Mitch Rupert, who is the beat writer out there. But again, I like to, I like to see it. Like the James Karen, Karen check thing was kind of a little bit kismet. And there are always guys like that. There's always guys where I get good reports. I'm like, eh, okay, let's do it. Whether it, it, it's like, there's also people I trust to give me reports on other guys. I'm like, eh, I'm not so much in on it. But when I see it myself, and I'm fully beginning to accept I'm going to be a dinosaur here, which is kind of amusing to me because the industry is moving very much to just give me the spin rate and exit velocity and a couple of good quotes, and we'll figure the rest out. But by the same token, it's going to even it's going to proceed past that. And in the next few years, I think we're going to get talks about how good they look on 360 video with their swing path. That's like the next thing. And we're talking about augmented reality will be there. Oh, he did really well on our augmented reality drills and instructs. And like, (laughs) it's just no, it's something that's going to happen, Um, which is like, yeah, (laughs) prospect beat was right along. He was. It's amazing. Uh, RIP prospect beat. Um, I just, you know, I just want to see it myself because you can't replicate game action. You just can't. And while, you know, three or six game looks or even 35 game looks like Jared got on, on Mickey Moniak are not the be all and end all. They tell you, they, they paint a picture of what the player can do. And that's all I'm particularly concerned about when I sit down to write a report or, do 30 prospect lists this offseason is what do I think this player can do and how likely is it that I think he will do it in the majors and performance always needs to be explained. <laughs> Brendan Galaski, our old minor league editor had a great tweet where he basically said, yeah, spin rate does not in any way, shape or cor- form correlate with ERA or FIP, which is a, a thing you can easily research for yourself if you want to. Uh, but there's been, I think there's been studies shown on it that it's not particularly correlative. You know, high spin is better than low spin, but low also, spin is also better than medium spin, right? Which so, is something <laughs> nobody ever talks about. Yeah, so it doesn't always bear out that way. It's not. It's it can be a little overly simplistic, um, and I worry. I don't really worry. Like I don't worry about my job, but I do worry sort of where the the scouting and prospect evaluation community are going in general. Because I don't know if it's. I mean, it's a selfish thing. Or I don't think it's particularly intellectually interesting to me more than anything else. Mm -hmm. right there's like a positive in that things have gotten democratized and 
you know, we're beneficiaries of that. Neither Jeffrey nor I has team experience. We're not scout school graduates. We're just guys that went to a lot of baseball games and started talking about them. And it's I an guess I, it's an IT professional, right. ex-lawyer, and a somewhat pretentious uh, liberal arts film student. Yeah, turned baseball person basically. Yeah. Uh, so, like, we're part of the positive of the democratization of it all, and I think there's very good aspects of that. I think we've reduced the barrier of entry for people outside of former associate scouts and people that were willing to do, like, crazy internships and stuff like that. But at the same time, there's also a lot of product out there that's not necessarily that good, there's just a lot of product out there in general. It's very easy to start a blog or, you know, tack on with somebody or even just starting posting video and tweets on Twitter and getting attention that way. And there's some people that have started that way that are very good at it. There's some people that have started that way that are not very good at it. And it's kind of, I think it's hard to tell for the consumer, which of those somebody necessarily is. But also, just from our perspective, like, we hardly ever discover guys anymore because there's always somebody out there <laughs> discovering them. I mean, my but, chat questions, my chat right. queue is full. Like, like, people are flagging Jefferson Espinal for me before I even get the AZL report. It's usually because, I mean, my thing is, like, the world would be a better place if nobody had access to complex league stats. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't but, know. I got I got flagged on some Rays prospect that like, yeah. looked good in the DSL last year, and I got flagged on him. And like I was gonna like put him as a sleeper in the Rays list. His name is Alberto Figueroa. Kylie got him before I did. Yeah, that happens all the time now. It's a race. And it's, right. it's a stupid arms race to a certain extent, too. But, right. I mean, there's a very, uh, this is a Jarrett Seidlerism, but if you pay fairly close attention to the major prospect sites, I'm not even talking about reading the lists, um, yeah. but, like, reading the product in general, and you look at whatever, baseball reference, MILB.com, wherever you want to get basic sort of performance stats information, you can get... 85% of the way to a good top 101 just on your own. I like to think that 15% has value, but uh, I don't like, there's so much content out there now that, and it's not like some of these people, a lot of these people are going to games too. It's yeah. not like it's, and I, I've never quite understood, like when I started out, and this is 2011, uh, it was, basically, you know, Kevin Goldstein at Baseball Prospectus, Jim Callis at, at All at Baseball America, John Manuel. Um, John Sickles at SBN. John Sickles at SBN. Uh, I think Pipeline existed then. And this would have been right around when Keith was going back to ESPN. It was a few years after, but yeah. yeah. Um, I think it was out of, I don't remember when he was out of the Blue Jays system, but I think it was a couple of years before that. And since then, like... And, you know, as a as the baseball perspective lead prospect writer, uh, my chair has been responsible for a lot of that because, you know, Jason Park sort of creating the coverage model that we still use today 
I think was and the up and in podcast too, where it's like every third episode there was an email about what do I do if I want to be a scout. Um has I think influenced literally a generation of prospect writing. And at the end of the day, there's only one Jason Parks. There's a lot of people trying to be Jason Parks, but there's only, I'm not one of them. Neither but, am I. <laughs> but there's a lot of it, there's only one Jason Parks. And that's why he's the you know, that's why he's a World Series ring and is the pro scouting director for the Arizona Diamondbacks right now. And there's a lot of people just posting video on Twitter. Right, but like so we write into literal teenagers again. There's a kid named Owen <laughs> that writes for one of the smaller sites that like hustles around, is really good, his stuff is good, he posts interesting stuff on he's a literal teenager. Children of America, <laughs> you do not want to be a professional baseball scout, trust me. Right, but like <laughs> Just starting with that base of knowledge, like where you're going to like 25 or 30 games and you're getting your writing reps in. I mean, it has value. And, and don't and get If you're That's starting that. Literally how I started out. I was 29, but whatever. Right. Like if you're starting. It wasn't available at, to me when I was 17. Right. If you're starting that <laughs> when you're 17 or 18, presumably by the time you're 22, you're either going to be working for a team or you're going to have my job, right? You're going to be a burnt out borderline alcoholic i don't know i can't like there's a couple different ways i can go <laughs> sure but but there's like a lot of kids out there that are there doing are. that kind of stuff now For all you kids out there again right. don't be a pro scout right you know we mentioned, that's not gonna exist in 10 years anyway so you know we we mentioned we have at baseball prospectus employed essentially kids that had interned in the Cape for like multiple consecutive years. And like all these mobile job seekers, 20, 21, 22. We've had like four or five of them. And they're all very good. Right. Yes. They're all fantastic. You know, one of them's already inside. I have no doubt that the rest of them are, will, will be too. And it's just like the breadth of like the experience these guys have at a young age and there's just so many people out there doing so much stuff and a lot of it is really good and it becomes frustrating for us like the kind of stuff you guys do like that's i i enjoy that you guys are out there you know i am friends with both of you i've been friends with both of you for some time but it's like really annoying when you like blow up the Mets prospect that we would have blown up on the list six months from now in like <laughs> May because <laughs> You know, then then our chat questions are about it, and we can't, like, you can't sit on anything anymore. I had a guy, I had my spot get blown up on a guy while I was writing an article about him that I was going to post the next day <laughs> earlier this season. And I won't say which prospect or which site did it, but, like, that happens now. Like, you just have to get – and sometimes, like, if I've, like, got, like, a major discovery that I want to write about it, I'll pull up my own spot and tweet about it because at least then I've, like, you know, basically pissed on the ground so it's my ground. Right, you got use the it later. <laughs> does that answer the question you asked 20 minutes ago, Steve? <laughs> it does in some detail, yes. We tend to be verbose if you've ever listened to our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> It's also even a little looser than I am on my podcast. So, <laughs> Right. Well, on this podcast, we have to take breaks. So we're just going to take a quick break and we'll get back to the discussion in just a minute. So we will be right back. 
Welcome back to From Complex to Queens. I'm Steve Seiper, and I'm joined by Ken Lavin and baseball prospectus prospect writers Jeffrey Patnastro and Jared Seidler. So we just got off a very interesting and lengthy debate uh, discussion about, you know, judging hitting prospects. So now let's switch over to the other side of the uh, plate and let's look at pitching prospects. Uh, personally, I think that's kind of one of the easier ones to develop an eye for. You know, it's easier to kind of just watch a guy over and over and over and over. You know, he's doing the same thing on a good start, you know, 80 to 100 pitches a game or so. So you can get a sense of like what's going right, what's going wrong, how good pitches are, how bad they are. So with pitches, what kind of stuff do you look for? Um, you know, what are you keeping an eye on? I look at how the hitters react to them. The, the one of this is, I, I think this is something Stick Michael told me once. The hitters don't lie. The hitters will tell you how deceptive a guy is. The hitters will tell you if they're having trouble picking a guy's stuff up. The hitters will tell you if they can't see the late break. So, like, I, you know, I look at how the, not necessarily how they're doing against them, but how they're reacting to them. Like, what are the physical reactions that the hitter's having to this pitcher? The swings um, will tell you everything you need to know. Right. Mm. You know, obviously you're also looking at velocity. Uh, you're looking at command. And again, by command, control is whether they can throw in the strike zone. That's less interesting than command, which is whether they can hit their spots. And usually the catcher will tell you that, not the hitter. So, you know, a lot of times you're not really looking at the pitcher to evaluate the pitcher, if that makes any sense. A lot of times I'll take like video of the pitcher's motion so I can go back and look at it later and see if there's like any mechanical flaws or, you know, pitch tipping or anything like that, because I don't really want to focus on that when I'm behind the plate, kind of looking at seeing all the other stuff going on in the pitcher batter relationship. Uh, you know, you got to look some at like the, how the ball comes out of his hand and, that kind of stuff. But I tend to focus on, you know, what's this pitch? To, what's he trying to do? How is the hitter reacting to it? And how is the catcher reacting to it? And that's kind of like my process for evaluating pitchers. And I like to do that, you know, especially in the first couple of innings and then kind of pull back and take a broader look as the game's going on. Um, I've also just found having my radar gun out makes me pay attention more. So I usually have my radar gun out if it's any kind of prospect. Uh, I, I'm the exact opposite. Yeah. Not on the radar gun stuff. I usually run the radar gun for two innings. But my focus when I'm watching a pitcher is I want to see repeatability of the mechanics. I want to see how the ball comes out of the hand. You know, in a perfect world, when you're trying to replicate pro scouting, it's easier because your focus is on one team. So you're not looking at the batter pitcher relationship. Yep. You know, when I'm doing a, I saw, I saw, I caught Matt Manning and Casey Mize. It's a good example, actually, uh, earlier this year on back-to-back starts against Hartford. And that actually wasn't a bad one. So the only time I really had to sort of zoom out was when Colton Welker was up. But if you've got a game where I'm trying to do a pitching coverage against like Lowell, who had five interesting bats that I had to follow at the same time, it gets a little tricky. So, like, in a perfect world, I can just watch the pitcher and the defense and everything else and do single-team coverage. But, yeah, I definitely want to see repeatability of mechanics. I want to see 
how the ball comes out of the hand. I want to see the, the slot consistent. Is the arm stroke consistent? Um, you know, obviously still hitter swings there will tell you a lot, especially on the fastball. Uh, you'll see all kinds of like, again, it depends on what level you're at, but you'll see all kinds of terrible swings on all kinds of breaking balls in the lower levels of the minors. Mm-hmm. But you can also tell, like, I also want to see where sort of the swing plane is going. Like, I want to see, sort of going back to if you can see spin, if guys are swinging under pitches, that's always interesting to me. Yes. Um, specifically on the fastball, too, if they're just not, it, that could mean they're not seeing it. It could mean there's a, there's a spin thing or there's an extension thing. If I don't have the track man dude sitting in front of me which i do in a lot of parks now which is also helpful but uh <laughs> um i want to see how his sequencing changes second and third time through the order yes. i want to see if he's a if he's a get him over in the breaking ball and comes out with two strikes guy i want to see if when you when does he throw his secondary stuff how confident is he throwing his secondary stuff especially in the low minors i i love it even if he's not a particularly great prospect and it's not a particularly great breaking ball, I think I've three guys just because they're willing to throw their off-speed stuff in, in any count because I think it's a positive marker. Um, you know, if they're willing to double up on their curveball and change up, like that's a good developmental marker for me. Um, I do think pitchers in general, especially even you know nine years in for me, are just an easier read for me than hitting prospects are. That's true for literally, literally, literally everyone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because you can see, you just see more in one sitting is the thing. The amount of time, like you'll see, a, even if you're sitting for a six game look, you won't see the hitter face as many pitches as you'll see from one start with a pitcher is essentially what it comes down to. You just get to see more, you see them in more situations, even within the course of the game. So I think for me, that's what the main things I want to look at are repeatability of mechanics and how the stuff comes out of his hand. Yeah, I... I would say, I, I think I'm probably closer to you than I described initially. I like charting games, and I kind of have like my own short. I did that my first three years, never right. again. I do. Right. So the one thing I do do is I do I do use sheets for pitchers. I don't use sheets for hitters. Right. I've, I almost I've around I, a bunch of different stuff, but I like to be actual chart. I like to just get my velocities down, and I like to have a nice little organized chart where I write mechanics in one section. I can chart fastball and breaking ball velocity and make my little notes there. It just, it helps me organize my thoughts about the pitcher. I think more than doesn't the hitters where I'm just like writing freehand basically. I, I like to look at kind of how the progression of how the game went. And I, I don't chart a lot of information. You know, I tend to just chart, you know, pitch velocity, pitch type. And if anything interesting happened, like on my, I can usually fit like an entire game chart on like my small little notebook piece of paper. So I'm not like, you know, this isn't like I'm charting like an actual charter or even an actual pro scout where they're doing like pitch location and impact of the play and all kinds of crazy shit. I'm just like trying to see, OK, like how like what kind of pitches is he throwing? You know, what kind of sequencing is he doing? Is the velocity kind of suddenly tailing down? Was there a big drop at some point anywhere? Second and third time through the order, did he all of a sudden, like, start throwing a changeup he wasn't throwing before? And I've kind of found just, like, keeping, like, a small little chart helps me with that. And, again, it also helps me pay attention to the game because, hey, listen, I go to, you know, 50, 60 games a year. You get bored sometimes, and when you get bored, you end up on your phone, and when you end up on your phone, you end up missing shit, right? So I try and do that as little as possible when there's anything interesting going on. I And I only chart, like... 
guys that I think are going to be interesting, or if, like, I see a guy really interesting in the first inning, I'll, like, start charting after that. But, like, I'm not necessarily, like, I'm not sitting there and charting, like, Nathan Jones. I probably am sitting there and charting Matt Allen. So, and maybe that's unfair to the roll threes of the world, but I like to think I can usually figure out pretty quickly who the roll threes are. Uh, so that's my favorite so, part of going to games is, is I argue seeing... more with scouts about roll three versus roll two than anything else. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, and sometimes you three Reese Hoskins. That is a thing that has happened to me. It happened to a lot of other people too. I think my it, funniest roll three is <sighs> Seth Lugo. I think I threed Seth Lugo. Yeah. And... It's not as funny as Reese Hoskins though. Yeah, and I, if you had seen... Did, did you see Reese Hoskins in the way? Probably at some point. Right, I mean, he well, was... I, like, I mean, I know the profile. It's not like... Yeah. Right, it was like every nondescript, like, right-handed college... Who's the Derek Hall? Yeah. I think I threw Derek, Derek Hall as the same dude, yeah. Chris Gittens was in Trenton. This yeah, year. that's a good it, one. You know, Chris Gittens is that guy. Uh, dude in... Uh, uh, first baseman brian mundell in the rocky system oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right and like you just say, and sometimes you miss on guys and sometimes sometimes you actually miss on guys and sometimes guys that aren't good become good those are two different things you know prospects can develop in wildly variant ways i have always said and jeffrey has been making this point for even longer than i did if you had a front-of-the-rotation major league grade on Jacob deGrom as a prospect, you must have been smoking some shit because he wasn't that good. All of the development for him happened in AAA and higher. He was a decent prospect, but it was impossible to get Jacob deGrom as he existed in the Eastern League or below to a front-of-the-rotation major league starter. And now he's the best pitcher in baseball. And that was all shit that happened unexpectedly at a point where you couldn't project it in his development. So if you came to me and said that you aided Jacob deGrom, I would just be like, no, you fucking didn't. If you came <laughs> to me and said you 55 Jacob deGrom, I'd be like, yeah, that was a good catch, man. <laughs> Every team had a Jacob deGrom. That's very true. I thought that was Michael Conforto. Mm. That too. DeGrom is uh, trading deGrom for Gregorius. <laughs> I think I may have suggested that at some point. It's entirely mm. possible. <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought I was going to trade Plowacki and Montero for Gregorius, which would have worked out better. I, I thought that I thought that was my trade. I liked Jacob Degrom. I thought he might be a major league closer, like a second division closer, like a really good setup guy. I thought Jacob Degrom might be what Seth Lugo is now. Yeah, that, that's was, that, good. that constituted really liking him. At the time. <laughs> my favorite is like. If you saw, I always made this, I actually made this on our prospect podcast the other day, but if you, the amount of stuff you'd have to do to Jacob deGrom to get him from double A to what he is now includes adding a plus pitch that did not exist at the time in double A, <laughs> which is another problem with evaluating pitchers is you can get into the situation where it's very sort of uh, bifurcated, where they either have the pitch or they don't. This tends to be more true with uh, changeup grips. You know, Michael Fulmer is a good example of this. Michael Fulmer did not have a changeup in the Mets system. He went to the Tiger system and they added an above average changeup. Because it was Dustin, basically a grip tweak. D- 
Dustin May, when he was a low minors prospect, was starting like a really interesting slurve that then broke out into a completely distinct curve and cutter. Yeah. Like in triple A. And that is like just sometimes stuff that happens. And trying to project it is like trying to project that the Cubs are going to trade for Nicholas Castellanos when you're making your Cubs preseason projections ahead of the season. Had to get that one in there. I had to get that one in there. If these are just, there's things outside of the ability for you to project. Uh, and, you know, the hitters that are coming up with like crazy power that aren't showing any raw power in the minors, like Cattell Marte. You, could you have gotten Cattell Marte to 40 home runs? Like so I think, ever? I think the more interesting example than Cattell Marte, because that gets into weird baseball shit is i mean literally baseball the baseball shit (laughs) um is aristides aquino because aristides aquino has not the the major league aristides aquino is not all that different from what a high upside projection on aristides aquino in double a would have been however he completely changed his stance setup and swing to actually do that so you're looking at a completely different hitter in a lot of ways although it's not an unexpected outcome right it's just like and we this kind of like weird unlock player development stuff has been happening way more recently than it used to and not only has it been happening more but it's publicized more i mean kevin goldstein 10 years ago would have told you there's no such thing as player development and in the sort of the organized system that exists today and at the time he was right right in most cases right and, and there's, and I talked about this on our podcast a couple of weeks ago. I want to write about it, although this is something that's just going on my long list and stuff I may never get to write about. We're not hearing about all these player development stories. We haven't gotten, like, the Pete Alonzo, how did he become this so fucking good thing? Because he wasn't really supposed to be. Sure. Was, you know. It's arguable that he was even supposed to be in 2018. In 2018, me and you had the argument over whether yeah, he was yeah. going to be this good or not. You know, there were, there were the idea, if you go back to when he was an A-ball player, you know, when he was in Port St. Lucie in 2017. It was a mess. Like, he, he was awful yeah. at first, even he, before he broke his, what, he got hit, broke his hand or his handmade or wrist, something had, like that. We had absolutely fucking dreadful reports, reports yeah. on him. Absolutely dreadful. And then by the end of that season, he's like bombing the ball all over the place in the Eastern League playoffs. And I'm going like, please put this guy on the 101. Please put this guy on the 101. I put him behind Tomas Nito on the Mets list. And right. And I couldn't get him on because our reports were so terrible on him. And it, I'm, I'm sure Jeffrey and Craig and Wilson are sitting there going like, oh, my God, Jared's off the deep end again. <laughs> you know, that's the thing that happens, too. It does. But, Usually like, with the Yankees pitchers, but yes. Right. But, like, it's just, like, this guy's all of a sudden, like, I'm looking at the reports that, like, got filed out of the FSL by, like, good people, people that I know what they're doing, and I'm, like, sitting there two months later, and, like, this isn't the same player. Which happens. It, yeah. And it happens. It happened during the course of the season. I was, I just, I'm finishing up on writing, like, a kind of review of his you know college and now minor league career and really the only public information out there about that is that he lowered where his hands are and he clearly did yeah yeah Yeah, Yeah, he lowered where his hands are and he fixed his setup which was god awful at one point no longer is but like 
there's a story there. Something obviously happened. Mm-hmm. You know, something obviously happened to Jeff McNeil. You don't go from being a light-hitting utility infielder to, you know, 800 plate appearances as, like, a seven-war player <laughs> at each 26 out of nowhere. Like, that doesn't happen. Something happened here. But nobody's told that story yet. All right, well, let's take another quick break here, and we'll go over um, defense. That's the last kind of thing we haven't touched on. So we'll be right back after this. Welcome back to For Complex the Queens. I'm Steve Saipa, and I'm joined by Ken and baseball prospectus prospect writers, Jeffrey Padnastro and Jared Seidler. So we went over what you look for in a hitter. We went over what you look for in a pitcher. Now let's talk about some defense. And obviously, this is going to have a lot of variance from level to level, from position to position. I think, Jeffrey, you coined the term catches are weird. You know, they're a whole separate thing in and of themselves. But um, let's just go over, like, infielders and outfielders first. What are the kinds of things that you look for? Oh, God. Um, The the problem with this is you can, like, sit on a dude for a series and not see anything more than a routine, like, six routines, six to threes. Right, and so teams just don't right. take fielding practice as much they as they don't, used to yeah. This year. yeah. Like five years ago, I'd get some fielding practices, but like everybody's decided that's useless for player development reasons, so they don't do it anymore. My favorite is I went, I tried to catch a batting practice session for what shortly after Riley Green got promoted to Norwich. And I caught them on the day. Instead of doing BP, they were doing pitcher fielding practice. Oh, I'm like, up. you <laughs> have got to be kidding me. I can't even go get a cheese day because none of the concessions are open. Mm. Um, I mean, I look for so like infield stuff is a little bit easier. You can get, I think you get eyes for it quicker because you see it more and like the good, the good hands and the good actions stand out, you know, arm you'll get very quickly. I mean, you don't always see guys at max effort, but if there's a decent shot into the 5.5 hole, you'll see a short star arm really quick. And that's, you know, it's like a, Again, it's a it's a like sort of a yes or no question. Is the arm is the arm there for the six or the left side or isn't it? Um, you know, the middle infield. You want to see a bunch of different other skills that infield is actually kind of useful for in the same way batting practice can be. Uh, first baseman, I rarely pay attention to unless it's really good or really bad. If everybody <laughs> can play first base, right? if I'm perfectly honest. So another, that was another thing we argued about with Alonzo. I'm mm-hmm. like, he's not so bad that he's going to have to be at DH. And then, like, a bunch of other people are like, he can't play first base at all. And you know what? He's still clunky as hell first base. But does anybody care right now? Literally, I had people in, from the Arizona Fall League, like, last year when he was there, telling me he was a 20 first baseman. No, he's not a 20 first baseman. He's a 45 first baseman. Yeah, 40 or 45. We're going to have this conversation. Right. Time immemorial. But... Right. And and the problem with Alonzo specifically is it. it it looks awkward. Right. So aesthetically, when you're trying to like a scouting report, like there are guys that just don't look great but make all the plays. Um, you know, Todd Frazier doesn't look great at third base, but he's clearly an above average third baseman. So, but it's not like Nolan Arenado or obvious or Matt Chapman obvious. So my or Aramis Ramirez obvious in the other direction. My favorite example for a current prospect with this is O'Neill Cruz. Mm. O'Neill Cruz is at least six foot seven. He might be six foot eight. Now. I was going to use Shervia Newton, which is the right. same kind of genre. So mm. I'm I'm guessing he's probably two thirty, two thirty five. 
giant dude. He's really good at shortstop. He doesn't it's, look it's like he amazing. would be really he doesn't look like he would be really good at shortstop because how could he look like he would be really good at shortstop? But it's like a plus plus arm and he's got like really fluid infield actions. And you there are still people that like give him no chance to play anywhere on the left side of the defensive spectrum and think he either ends up in right field or first base. And maybe they're right. Um yeah. including like very, very good long-time scouts who we've right, talked like to. Right, like high-level so. pro scouts yeah. that we've talked to. I think he's either going to stick at, at shortstop or end up in center, which is not the consensus opinion of literally anybody but me, but, you know, who the hell cares? <laughs> uh, but, like, so I kind of look for, you know, I want to see, like, actions and first step for an infield prospect. And obviously, you want to see arm if it's the guy that's playing on the left side of the infield. Um, the first step is more important at third base than it is second. The fluidity of the action would be more important for me at second because a second baseman has more time to get to the ball than a third baseman does. The third baseman, you know, it's the hot corner. It's quick reaction position. It's quick reaction either side to side or coming in. Whereas in the middle infield, it's more of a smooth action. So there's kind of like slightly different things you'd look at for the infield. But I mean, honestly, defensive evaluation more than anything else in terms of live player evaluation, you just got to go to a million games and develop the eye and you'll know when you see it. That's like, you know, there's just like, there's no, like there's no way to figure it out other than just like, seeing it a million times and then like having the mental repository of, okay, this is like what Francisco Lindor looks like at shortstop. And this is what Wilmer Flores looks like. At <laughs> and, I see no difference. Right. And this is what they looked like at shortstop in low A. And this is what they looked like in shortstop in double A. And like, you just need to see it. That also goes into something that I, we didn't talk about on either of the previous segments, I think there's a great value to seeing live major league baseball as someone that's doing minor league and amateur evaluation, just because you've got to remember how good those guys are. And that's what you're projecting. What you're projecting is the major league outcome. So you need to be able to see it and understand what that looks like, too. Yeah, that's very true. It's very true. I have definitely a few times on this podcast told the story of the Henry Mejia rehab start in... Never written. Right, it is actually, it is instructive. I mean, rehab starts aren't always great because sometimes, especially if it's veterans, it's just guys getting their work in. Mejia was obviously pitching for a major league spot at the time, which makes it a little bit different. I saw Mike King on rehab for Staten Island. We both uh, saw Vargas on rehab yeah. in Trenton, and it's like, we're sitting there going like, okay, and that's this is the guy like, that's pretty much just getting his work in. Right. And I, I wrote a column about this. Like, this is a guy that, you know, sitting behind the plate, if I'm like, if he's like 22 and I'm projecting his change up, I'm like projecting as a seven because it's a present six. And like, you don't realize that like, you know, even a Jason Vargas is throwing like a six change up and like a 55 curveball. So, like, when you're, you know, you're Michael Kings of the world, 
who like isn't even an established good major league pitcher, and I I love Michael King. I'm stealing Jeffrey's point now. I'm assuming he carved that lineup up. He did, yeah. Right, and just like you know, you compare that to the other pitcher you're going to see in the Penn League. Like you just gotta, it kind of gives you a basis for what all of this is supposed to look like. My second or third last game of the season, I caught Jason Groom on rehab, who hasn't even gotten out of A ball yet, right. and it's coming off Tommy John surgery. And right. there were just two curveballs in there, and he threw like six or seven. But there were just two curveballs in there where it's like this is a this is a seven curveball, mm-hmm. like you know, I mean, this is just like a present seven curveball. I mean, right. it isn't because there's only two of them, but it's like you just don't see that <laughs> in the minors. Let I mean, anywhere in the minors, really, let alone let alone low A. And you know, tie it back to defense. There are guys like I saw Victor Robles two years oh. ago. I saw Victor Robles in low A. He was he was in double A. He was playing left field because somebody was on a rehab assignment. I don't remember if it was uh, it Michael Taylor, right? Michael Taylor, Michael Taylor, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm watching this dude play right left field. I text a, a scout buddy of mine. I'm like, hey, Victor Robles might be an eight. Eight left fielder. He's like, well, he's a seven center fielder, so that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> right. And just I, like it's just he's just there, and it's like he's just there. Where right. the ball is, he's just there. The arm's good. Yeah. I remember I saw Robles. Um, it was like his first month of full season ball. I remember it was a shivering cold night in Lakewood, and I think it was in April. It may have been May, but it was like really early in the season when he was at low A. And I'm just like watching him and he's got, he's got like, but it's in the outfield and you'll see this sometimes. Juan Ligaris used to do this, like the negative first step thing. And like, if you want to talk about me seeing Juan Ligaris for 20 games in the minors, we can do that too. (laughs) You know, he, he's just like, and then he just like, there was a ball hit in the right center field gap. And I like, was just like, okay, that's a double. Like maybe like if, you know, Maybe he's going to be able to cut it off. And then all of a sudden, he just comes diving in and just catches it. And I'm just like, Jesus Christ. So I seven is outfield defense in low A. And I'm like, I think that's the only outfielder I've ever, like, seven at that level. But he was just, like, five cuts. Of, it was a seven, seven arm, too. Mm. It was just, like, five cuts above the outfield defense you see at that level. And I was talking to a scout. Um, that I know that was there and we're just like, they could put him in the majors right now and he'd be like, he would have gone off this year. Like, I think his defense may have slightly regressed since then, if anything, because of the injuries. Like, it wasn't future seven center field defense. It was just seven center field defense. I mean, and for the record, he's uh, 23 runs above average by DRS this year. Right. Yeah, really? I, yeah, great. You figured out Victor Robles was a Yeah, good. Center. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Good job, Jared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some of these are not hard calls. Like, we always want to make the hard, difficult call. Some of these are just, like, really I mean, the best sometimes. thing, honestly, the, the most accurate thing I ever wrote at Baseball Prospectus is that Victor Robles' like downside comp was Ender Inciarte. He basically had the Ender Inciarte season this year. <laughs> right. And, and he hasn't panned out totally, you know. I also thought plus bordering on plus plus hit tool and he hasn't gotten there yet. He's also 22, uh, to be fair. <laughs> he hasn't gotten there yet. I didn't say he wasn't going to get there. Uh, 
But like, Ahmed Rosario, I think, is a good kind of sure. example to wrap this uh, portion of the discussion on because I think both of us and I suspect both of you guys thought that Ahmed Rosario was going to be a plus defensive shortstop, mm-hmm. right? Everybody mm-hmm. thought. Yeah, pretty much. He yeah. had all the tools to do it, is the thing. Right. Plus arm, good first yep. step, good hands, good motions, was already making all the plays by the time he got to double A. If you start going way back, if you go back to like when he was in short season, people thought he might end up at third base. I did not like him in Kingsport at all as a right. as a shortstop. By the time he got to Brooklyn, it's like, okay. Right. He can the, like body, the... the body went in certain ways, yeah. and he improved at certain things such that like, oh, and above that, like a 55 or 6 defensive shortstop looked like it was going to happen. And it, obviously, if you're a Mets fan and you're listening to this, you probably don't think that Ahmed Rosario is a very good defensive shortstop right now. <laughs> and it's just like, sometimes they don't turn out how you think they're going to turn out. And it turns out that Ahmed Rosario is, like, terrible at positioning himself and, like, barely listens. Let's not put that on Ahmed Rosario. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. And it's always... Defense at this point is defense within the context of the team. It's more, right. it's not Ahmed Rosario. It's New York Mets shortstop position while Ahmed Rosario is playing it because there's other stuff going on there. So Manny Machado ends up as a minus 15 shortstop right. in half a season in Baltimore. Yeah. <laughs> right. And how Adam Jones is suddenly the worst defensive outfielder of all time, but only at the end of, only at the Baltimore portion of. Yeah. Yeah. Like, as soon as he went to Arizona, he was fine this year. How about that, Jeffrey? Mm. Do you really mean to tell me that Adam Jones is not a historically bad corner outfielder defensively? I can't imagine. Anyway. Um, but, you know, that he doesn't, like, like, there's just certain things he doesn't do well that were really hard to project at the time he was a minor leaguer that he wouldn't do well. And now all of a sudden he might be a future center fielder. But... You're kind of, you're most of the time, unless you have the complete package, like a Victor Robles defensively or Francisco Lindor defensively or J.P. Crawford defensively, you're projecting an outcome based on indicators. You're not projecting what's currently there. And God, if we start talking about catchers, we'll be here all night. So. <laughs> we'll just leave it at catchers are weird. Catchers, catchers, are, catchers are weird. Yeah. All right, well, that was a very uh, in-depth and educational discussion for me and everybody else out there, I'm sure. Do um, you guys have anything you want to plug before we go? You want to you do the Patreon plug in yes, 30 so seconds? Yes, all, all of my podcasts, both uh, Three Quarters Delivery, the Prospect podcast at Baseball Prospectus, and for all you kids out there, the Mets Adjacent one, are launching Patreon pages this week. Um. They're at patreon.com slash for all you kids and patreon.com slash TQD as part of sort of a larger baseball prospectus podcast network. You can also find the baseball prospectus podcast network, which will give you all of the current baseball prospectus podcast in one feed. We have seven right now, maybe adding some in the, in the weeks and the months to come. Yeah. So both of us write at BP, obviously we are, Starting our list products about a month from now. I the think the week after the World Series ends, yeah. basically. The Mets are fairly early on. Uh, NL East is the third division we're doing, so yeah. Yeah, so we're uh, 
we're kind of gearing up for that. Spoiler had, alert, it's not good. Oh, God. <laughs> we, we've had a lot of uh, prospect coverage over the course of the season, including a fair amount of Mets prospect coverage, because we are, if nothing else, Mets prospect people at heart. And, uh, yeah, we have very good writing on the site. Not much about the Mets recently. The Mets hindsight article went up last week, which had a prospect uh, prospect analysis kind of broad view of the system by me and had Nick Schaefer just savaging some of the things that the Mets did over the course of the season. It's not hard to do. But, uh, yeah, we've got all kinds of content, and uh, we hope you'll check out the website and our podcast. Obviously, if anyone doesn't have a baseball prospectus subscription, should get one because, like they said, it's chock-loaded of lots of good things for the Mets and for just Major League Baseball in general. Um, if anyone has any questions, comments, whatever, you could send us an email at our email address from complex to queens at gmail.com. You could also follow us on Twitter and shoot us questions there. I am at Steve Saipa. Ken is at Ken Levin 91. Jeff, your Twitter is at Jeff Paternostro. At Jeff Paternostro. There's not Jeff. enough characters to do my full name. Oh. Which is ridiculous because you don't like being called Jeff. I, I know, never understood I that. Should have done like just Jeffrey Pat or something. It's kind of weird. Mine is a J Sidler. All right. So obviously, same thing. If you're not following them, you should because they are uh, extremely knowledgeable about Mets prospects and just lots of baseball in general. My my social media is terrible, by the way. So. <laughs> Can't confirm. <laughs> Uh, if you're not subscribed to our podcast or their podcasts, you should subscribe and then obviously rate and review. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'll be back next week. And until then, love the Mets. Love the Mets. Love the Mets.